Good evening, welcome. And um, this is going to be this is going to be a fun, fun discussion. I hope I, I'd like to believe it will. Um, and and very um, very much relevant to kind of the stuff that's been going on in the market the last couple of days, last couple of weeks, and perhaps uh, stuff that's been going on in the world the last couple of months. There is a there is definitely a significant um, experience that we're we're watching of um, you know I don't want to call it class warfare. But there's definitely there's definitely a a frustration um, in classes. It's not all financial. It's it's influence as well. But um, but in, but money is influence, no question. And um, so there's a lot of pushback. And what we've seen going on in the market in the last week with GameStop and these other stocks and the influence of Reddit, um, you know, it, it's a pushback against against the the uh, essentially against the hedge funds and their their power and their influence and the the level of money that they that they carry around and so on. Um, but regardless, the, there's there's much to be discussed here, much to to analyze to understand what is what is the Jewish viewpoint on wealth? Is um, is money a good thing? Is money a bad thing? Can you have too much money? And you have too little money. Um, there is a uh, my rabbi in a camp that I worked for years ago told us that when he was a camper in an overnight camp uh, in the Catskills, so he they, they made this big sign for visiting day, and the sign said, "Money is the root of all evil. Leave your evil with us." So um, you know. The, the idea that money is the root of evil is definitely an issue. Um, in a couple of weeks, um, we're going to read about the golden calf. And one of the, the, the Midrashic commentators tell us that Moses said to Hashem, if you, had not, um, if you had not given the Jewish people so much money, so much gold that they took out of Egypt, they would not have worshipped the golden calf. You gave them too much money. So... Specifically, we're going to focus this conversation around CEO compensation. Um, although the discussion is goes far beyond that, it, it has a much uh, broader range. Um, as we discussed, it's 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 really about wealth and money and how Judaism looks at wealth and money and how we should how we should embrace it and look at it for our for ourselves in our own lives. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, let's see. All right, let's start with our case study. And Donna, since you got here first, please read the case study. If you're like me, the hot button issue of exorbitant pay for corporate executives is mainly a moral one, a matter of values. Those bloated and possibly soon to be regulated pay packages of American CEOs illustrated what might be called the plutocratization of American life, a glorification of money as the chief ingredient of success. 
Executive pay in 2004 was 431 times the pay of the average worker. And in the decade before 2005, executive pay increased five times faster than the pay of the ordinary employee of that company. The figures were not surprisingly even starker when CEO compensation was compared to that of people trying to survive on the minimum wage. An average CEO that Democrats on the House Committee wrote in a 2006 report makes more before lunch on his first day of work than a minimum wage earner will make all year. So um, let, let I want to show you two things. One is this chart, but this chart is old. This is um, this may be as much as 10 years old. Uh, the the average pay of an S&P 500 index company CEO versus the all of these other um, positions, including minimum wage earners. Right. So obviously you can see that the disparity is quite significant. But I want to show you, I, I decided to Google this source, the AFL-CIO, which is a, um, uh, how do I do this here? Okay, so the AFL-CIO is the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations. So not important what your political not, no, I shouldn't say not important, not, not relevant to this conversation, what your political um, uh, influence and attitudes are about labor unions and so on. What I really wanted to make the point is that um, if we look at, just look at this image here, they're, they're, you know, they're into, they're statisticians. So let's just look at this one for a second here, right? So you've got uh, which 20 CEOs furloughed a majority of their their workers this year due to the COVID-19 yet made more than 1,000 times their medians employees compensation last year. Okay, so I don't know the specific answer, but I'm sure you can, you can just Google AFL-CIO uh, pay ratio and you'll see this, but you have these CEOs that furloughed a majority of the workforces and made more than 1,000 times what their employees made. So clearly we have a, a tremendous disparity um, between what CEOs are getting paid and what their employees are getting paid. So are, are we suggesting that we should even the playing field? I don't think so. That, that's never really worked out so well historically. Uh, we've done that in communist countries. That, that experiment just doesn't work. Um, but, may, but some are advocating that the, C, the salaries of the CEOs should come back down to earth into a much more reasonable uh, level, and perhaps they should be making something closer to what their workers are making. Obviously, you know, you need to develop the talent and so on. But, but some are suggesting that maybe eight times, uh, eight times the the uh, the average salary, the median salary, is what a you know a top paid CEO should get paid. So, uh, just let's take a minute or two. What are what are your feelings? Should there be a limit on what people get paid? Um, what might that look like? Share your thoughts. Rabbi, I don't think you can dictate private salaries. I mean, I don't think that that's not a privilege that I think we should have, that they're private companies. We are, I don't think that we can dictate what, what they decide the salary is. 
I understand minimum wage that can be dictated, but I don't understand how uh, CEO salaries could be dictated by the public. Okay, so I, I guess the question is not, obviously tonight, we're not going to make the decisions for humanity um, or for this country, but in terms of, in terms of attitudes, um, do you have a, a particular attitude as to if you had the ability to, if we did have the ability to dictate, do you feel that there should be some kind of control on how much a CEO makes? I do, yes. I agree with the perspective of the AFL-CIO presenter. Why? Because not I understand what you said about level playing field, meaning taking away all differences. No, I mean, you know, I've worked very hard in my life, education and things. I, I believe that should be rewarded, you know. Um, but the way it is today, and it's just, it's, you know, the last... 30, 40 years in the United States where there's no, it's irrational. No, and Jeff Bezos, since going along with what AFL-CIO said, Jeff Bezos and, and Zuckerberg at Facebook, et cetera, you know, since the pandemic, they've become, their billions have just increased. And, you know, so many people are, are suffering and they, the work that all their workers and even us, because they, they make money off of our content and our information, are the other people are not being compensated appropriately and the work put in, you know, they're taking more out. Their value is not what they're getting is over representative of what they what the, the model really should entail. So so where is your bone? Is your bone with with the fact that they're making that much money or that um, other people don't have? In, in, the, in current days, yes, I mean, yes, that there's like 10 people, 10 billionaires, multi-billionaires in the country that represents half of the wealth or something. Yes, they're making too much money, yes. Uh, but again, I'm, I, I don't mean, I, I wanna understand you. I'm not, not challenging you. What, what is the, what bothers you about that? That it's like my father was a criminal defense attorney and I know that justice is not blind and I know that the justice system is not fair even though we say so. So I feel this inordinate amount of money in a few people's hands who somehow have had the wherewithal, the success or whatever to be able to gain the system so much to their advantage. It, you know, while we're, it's on the backs of all of us because even if we're not their employees, it's our information and things that they derive value out of. They're taking, they're taking more than, it's not that, yeah, I begrudge them for making more money, but in the whole, in the whole formula, they're getting more value than really they've earned. Okay, I, I hear you. Um, anybody else have another perspective that they wanna share? I, I disagree, Ken. I think if they are taking on the responsibility they're putting in the work. Um, they they're assuming all the risk. Uh, they're the ones that if things uh, don't go the way they should, if they if things go awry, they're going to be held accountable and responsible. They should be compensated for that. Guys at the lower level that are coming in, making the hourly wage, they're coming in. They've got a certain. Um, most of them are unskilled, 
And because you are unskilled, you are going to get a lesser pay and they don't, there's no risk in what they do. Um, I own a small business with my husband and our uh, employees are oftentimes, uh, I don't know how to even put this nicely, uh, very ungrateful, vindictive. They've done ugly things to make, uh, try to make the business fail. And, uh, you know, we, we often pay them a way above minimum wage. They're talking about the the $15 minimum wage now, um, none of my staff people are making that. They're making more than that. So they negotiate a good salary when they come in. All we expect is a good day's work for uh, honest day's pay. And yet we get so much uh, black because we are the owners and there is this mentality that we are uh, making so much more money than them. But if there is not enough money in the business to pay everybody, we at the top are the ones that suffer. If things are, if um, things aren't going right in the business, they don't know about it. All they know is that they come in, they do a job, uh, they go home and they expect to be paid. They don't sit up at night scratching their heads trying to figure out how to make ends meet or how to do anything with related uh, relationship to keeping that business going so that they can have employment. And so CEOs, if they're taking on the responsibility, if they have, they're assuming the risk, whether it's a small business or a big business, if they've got the talent, if they're the ones doing um, all of the, the, the strategic things at the top to make that business go and grow, why shouldn't they be compensated for what they do? Fantastic. So we have two perspectives. I, we, we, I would love to engage in the debate, but I want to share. We've we've heard two very strong perspectives, two very strong opinions, which I appreciate. Let's let's see what Judaism, what what Torah has to say about this question, and then at the end we can bring it back together and see if we've got some clarity, um, refined our opinions, or uh, we'll agree to agree to disagree. Okay. So we're going to start with an interesting, an interesting story. There was a family um, during the Second Temple era. Um, the family's name, name was the Abtinas family. And the Abtinas family had the, one of, the, one of the, off, the things that were done in the temple was the offering of the incense. And the incense um, was a, a blend of certain spices and uh, needed to be prepared a certain way. And the, they had a certain talent as to how they went about preparing these spices. The sages wanted them to, um, to share the, the, um, their method with others, and they refused. So let's read, we're going to read some of the texts that tell us the story of the Aptinas family. So... Um, Let's see, Terry, why don't you read, let's do text, why don't we read text 1A and 1B, please. Um, Terry, are you okay reading or should we ask someone else? Unmute. <laughs> okay, there you are. Alrighty, uh, is is it starting with the members of the House of Abtinas? Um, the, the the one above that. 
Okay. These are remembered. All right. I see the one ain't now. All right. These are remembered with reproach. The house of Aptinas, who refused to teach others the method of preparing the incense. The members of the house of Aptinas were expert in preparing the incense, but would not teach their art. The sages sent for specialists from Alexandria who were, killed, who were as skilled as compounding incense as the house of Aptinas, but did not know how to make the smoke ascend in the same way. The smoke of the house of the Aptinas ascended as straight as a stick, whereas the smoke of the Alexandrians, Alexandrians <laughs> scattered in every direction. Drop more here. When the sages heard this, they said, all that God created was created for his glory. As it says, God has made everything for his own purpose, Proverbs 16, four. The members of the house of Eptinas should return to their position. The sages sent for them, but they would not come. Then they doubled their hire and they came. Beforehand, they would receive 12 mena each day from that day on 24. Rabbi Yehuda, Yehuda said beforehand, they would receive 24 mena each day from that day on 48. Okay, so let's put context what these what the this this uh, currency of mana is. Um, it says that a judge in Jerusalem um, would earn 99 mana a year. Okay? So let's let's just put that for fun. Let's put that into 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 US dollars. Let's say 99 mana is $99,000, okay? So the and let's use let's even use the first opinions um, amount of 24, 24 mana a day. So 24 times 365 is 8,760 divided by 99 is 88.48. So they earned 88 times what a judge uh, earned. So let's do that 88 times 99. Thousand, so they would they would earn, if we were using U.S. dollars, eight million seven hundred sixty thousand dollars, to the judges ninety nine thousand dollars a year, and if we're going with Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, then they would make seventeen million five hundred twenty thousand dollars versus the judge who makes ninety nine thousand dollars a year. Okay, so clearly they are um, asking for a lot of a lot of mana, right? They're asking for a lot of mana. So, um, but why, why, were, why, was the, why were the sages not happy with them? What did you read? Why were the sages not happy with them? They wouldn't share their skill. How to ah, do they wouldn't share their skill. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were um, trying to gouge the, the temple. By the way, the temple's a nonprofit institution. Right, so they were asking for this either eight, eight, eight to nine million dollars from the temple, or seventeen to eighteen million dollars from the temple. The, the the sages were not upset about that. They alone knew the skill. Look on text two a. Yet they refused to teach it to others. Had they been concerned for God's honor, they would have taught it to others, so that the glory of the temple would not be marred upon their passing. They were going to take their secret to the grave. So where is the criticism here? The criticism is not about the fact that they were making a lot of money. Clearly, the rabbis had no issue with them making a lot of money, even 
forget about eight times the average salary of a judge. A judge is a high paid position. It's a community servant, right? They got paid uh, 88 times what a judge got paid or maybe six, uh, 160, whatever it is, times what a judge got paid. The rabbis were not critical of that, even less so, equally not as critical as the fact that that money was gonna come from the temple's coffers. The rabbis were upset about the fact that they were taking the secret to the grave with them. So clearly from this, this uh, passage here, we don't seem to, the sages don't seem to have a, a, an issue with making a lot of money, okay? Don't go out yet and take that high-paying CEO compensation job. We have some other sources that we're going to look into. But before we look into other sources, let's, let's try to understand. If indeed the issue is not, the rabbis have no issue with people making a lot of money, so what, what could it be that, um, that people have, if there's no halachic or moral issue, what, what bothers people? Perhaps it is envy, right? Right. The Talmud has a very interesting um, passage on this, um, which I which I want to uh, well let's let's just look at this one first here. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. I love that line. That's a great line. Should be pasted on our refrigerators. It's uh, you know. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. We, we know this idea that a person sometimes um, would rather have $100 if everyone else has 50 than to have $200 if everyone else has 300. We'd rather have more than everyone else, even if it means we'll have less. So there, there is something to human nature in this regard. And by the way, that's why we have the Torah's prohibition of you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover it. You cover your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. A simple reason is because envy, lust, and pursuit of honor remove a person from the world. So we, we this idea of lusting after something that belongs to coveting something that belongs to someone else, being envious is very, is very real. And it's something that we need to manage, but we definitely don't need to control um, the compensation of others because of our uh, human nature occasionally of having this concept around uh, envy and lust. And quite the contrary, one who, um, one who has, um, uh, just, you take a minute to read this text six, it's just a nice, it's a nice passage that uh, gives us some insight here. Um, while you're reading, I'll just make the comment that, that being jealous of someone, wanting CEOs not to have the compensation because we're envious of them is, is simply a commentary on ugly negative character that we may possess. Again, if, if, if that is the motivation. I'm not, uh, God forbid, accusing anybody here of having that motivation. But, but if, that, if that is what's driving people to be opposed to it, and, and, and let's just, let's bring it into, into today's uh, context. Um, if the drive of the, the Reddit people um, is, to, is, to, uh, is a, an act of, of, of jealousy, of envy against the hedge funds, um, then that's simply an ugly character trait. That's not a good reason 
to, to try to bring down uh, institutions like that because one is envious. Um, so what we're gonna do for, for the balance of our discussion tonight is really focus on the idea of money itself and wealth itself. How rich does the Torah want us to be? Um, I want to present a few, a few different sources, seven to be exact, that seem to convey conflicting attitudes that various different sources have towards money. And then we're going to, we're going to focus on, on a passage um, from a, an early scholar, and we're going to dissect three elements to what the scholar is saying for the balance of our class. So let's just take a minute and look to look at, at these texts here. Um, so let's see, um, Lisa, can you read for us real quickly these, uh, just go, just read right straight through text A, B, D, B, C, D, and E, and then Sandrine, you'll read for us F and G, please. Okay, text A, <clears throat> give me neither poverty nor wealth, provide me my allotted daily bread. Text B, such is the way of Torah, read with salt, bread with salt, you shall eat. Water in small measure you shall drink, and upon the ground you shall sleep. Live a life of privation and toil and Torah. If you do so, fortunate are you, and it will be good for you. Fortunate are you in this world, and it will be good for you in the world to come. Text C, there is a popular saying, poverty adorns Israel like a red strap on a white horse. Text D, who is rich? He is who, who is happy with his lot. Text E, Rabbi would honor the wealthy. Rabbi Akiba would honor the wealthy. Thank you. Welcome. Sandrine. You're, you're muted. Okay. The people of Alexandria ask Rabbi Yeshua, what should a person do to become wealthy? Rabbi Yeshua replied, do a lot of business and deal honestly. So Alexandrian said to him, many did so, but did not succeed. Then they should pray for mercy from the one to whom the riches belong. As it says, mine is the silver and mine the gold. What then do you mean to teach us that one without the other does not suffice? What is the meaning of the verse you should surely size? Five, yeah. Size. Give Deuteronomy 14:22. Give side that you may be given riches. Bring all the size and try me now, say God. Will I not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there be more than enough? Malari. What is the meaning of the words until there be more than enough? Rabbi Bararna say in the name of Rav, until your lips grow weary from saying it is enough. Thank you. So it, we see here uh, really um, disparate sources. Some seem to say that we should live a life of poverty. Some seem to say that we should have so much wealth until we get tired of saying it's enough. Um, uh, it, text E seems to indicate that Rabbi Akiva would honor the wealthy and Rebbe would honor the wealthy, which begs the question, what's that about? Or as the kids would say, what up with that, right? 
And then you have uh, some balance statement in text D, who was rich, he was happy with his lot. So we're gonna come back to these passages once we have a better understanding of the challenge um, surrounding wealth. And we're gonna reread these passages with a different set of eyes. But now let's take a few minutes and read this idea from Rabbi Yeshua Ibn Shuib. He says like this, a very wise man once said, wealth has three evils. Most people attain it through forbidden means. That's one. Two, if it was attained in ways that are permitted, it will be spent on something forbidden. And three, the person will forget God and say, it is my strength and the might of my hand that has accumulated this wealth for me. So Ibn, Sh Ibn Shuib is telling us that here are, the, here are the three concerns that surround money. One is, is it being earned in, a, in an acceptable legal and kosher manner? Number one. Number two, is it being spent on things that are appropriate to spend it on? And number three, how is it affecting the person who has the money? How is it affecting their character? So let's look at these in the context of CEO compensation, and we will have some, some insight into, um, into Torah's view on this matter. So the first question is, do, do the CEOs, are they earning their money in a legal way? in a moral way. So um, back in the day, back in the day, we had, um, in the bailout, well, let's, let's go ahead and read it. This is an important, an important um, piece here. Donna, please read for us. Okay. Obama administration officials and Republicans alike were nearly universal in condemning the 165 million in bonuses that the American International Group, which has received more than 170 billion in taxpayer, ba taxpayer bailout money from the Treasury and Federal Reserve, is to pay executives in the business unit that brought the company to the brink of collapse last year. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican minority leader, worried about the message the bonuses sent to other companies receiving bailout money. If you're going to take the government as a partner, the message here, I'm afraid, to any business out there that's thinking about taking government money is let's enter into a bunch of contracts real quick and we'll have the taxpayers pay bonuses to our employees. He said AIG, nearly 80% of which is now owned by the government, has defended its bonuses, arguing that they were promised last year before the crisis and cannot be legally canceled. In a letter to Mr. Geithner, Edward M. Liddy, the government-appointed chairman of AIG, said at least some bonuses were needed to keep the most skilled executives. We cannot attract and retain the best and the brightest talent to lead and staff the AIG businesses, which are now being operated principally on behalf of American taxpayers. If employees believe their compensation is subject to continued and arbitrary adjustment by the U.S. Treasury, he wrote, Mr. Geithner. Okay, so what you have here is companies that were bailed out by the government. So this goes a little bit to one of the comments that were made earlier. So these are no long, they are private companies, but they're not private companies because they're now owned by the government, at least the go government has a share in the ownership of them. 
Um, and then at the same time, they continue to get these big bonuses. And the question is, is that right? Is that justified? And the, the CEOs and the board members put forth the argument that, yes, we need it because we need to have the best talent. We need to keep the company afloat. We need to grow the company. So we're, therefore, we have to pay these, these high, high uh, salaries. Um, conversely, we have another really interesting uh, question, and that is that uh, you know, we have CEOs that um, have a good skill set. Um, the question becomes, the, is, is the CEO getting paid what they are really worth? Um, or are they getting paid because it gives the company some kind of some kind of status that we can say, you know, what, there's an individual who was the CEO of one company and now he's recruited to be the other company because it gives shareholders a sense that the company is strong when in reality, the CEO is not doing a good job. And we've seen historically certain companies that the, uh, the, 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 the profits were down and yet the CEO's compensation has gone up. Let's take it a step further. Let's think about the structure of many of these companies. How does, how does a board member keep his position by making sure that the CEO continues to like him or her, right? So I'm a board member. I'm going to make sure that I keep my job and I get my bonus as long as I keep my bosses in place. And the way I keep my boss in place and keep him happy with me is I don't fight against his bonus. So he wants, you know, 10% increase on his 20 million and I want a 20% increase on my 5 million. We're going to rub each other's backs. This way I get to stay a board member. He gets to stay CEO and, uh, and it's all good. Is that really in the interest of the shareholders? Um, so th there, there, obviously there is, the issue is a real issue. Um, this is not made up stuff um, even as we analyze it. And um, there is place for government to step in and create regulations that help not necessarily control um, how much money the CEOs are making, but making sure that the, pro the, the process to determining what the CEO gets paid should be determined through a fair, transparent process that doesn't shortchange um, the, the shareholders. Rabbi, Rabbi? Yeah. Um, I came to mind since we've discussing there's also the concept of excess profits. It's an economic term or more traditionally known as windfall profits. So not necessarily ill-begotten gains, but kind of going to my argument earlier. So then, so from that point of view, the pool that the CEO compensation is coming from in that in that outlook would be lower. So therefore the compensation would theoretically be lower. So you're saying that if the comp if the CEO's compensation is tied into actual money that the company's made. So if the company actually has made money, um, the CEO might get more. And if the company's lost money, the CEO would get less. Not well, no, I'm, I'm trying to be broader. Okay. The concept of windfall pro excess profits really that's what i you know in, it's often looked at as windfall profits there's there's 
you know, there's been legislation passed too about that. So to take, to tax the, those profits more. I look at it more like morally from the, from the excess profits. It's an economic term. You know, oh, that's, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So you're, you're saying from a moral standpoint, the fact that they even make the extra money on the excess profits, forget about yes. the taxes. Okay, good. I, I, I hear your point. Um, again, we're, clearly there are, there are things that are not straight and on the up and up. Um, and the, the, the thing is like this, if there is, what we're trying to, what we're trying to understand here is if we remove envy and we remove, um, and we remove any kind of illegal activity and immoral activity, right? If somebody, if somebody came and offered me a job today to take a position as a CEO where I'm gonna make $30 million um, and it's either me or the next guy and the bit we're engaged in legal business and good moral upstanding business um, and I'm going to make that $30 million legally, even if I'm going to have to pay more taxes, and even if the method to making that is regulated and so on and so forth, that's really ultimately where the question is, is there anything wrong with that, right? So, so here we're breaking down, where are the problems? The first problem with making a lot of money is that it becomes difficult to make a lot of money if you're doing it legally. I, I don't mean that it's impossible. But oftentimes the process of making a lot of money is not a straight process. And we've, as we've demonstrated, you have situations that help promote that. Um, not necessarily a person stealing, but it's rubbing shoulders and rubbing backs and good old boys. And, and now somebody's making a lot of money that, um, that is shortchanging the shareholders. And that's why there are government regulations that step in. And frankly, I, I, again, I don't want to. I don't want to give my opinion, but let's assume that it was gain. You know, the, the the money was was earned legally and morally, and the government says, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna tax you for that excess windfall." I don't, I don't have a problem with that. In other words, if I'm gonna make my thirty million, and then I'm gonna make another twenty million because it's excess windfall, and the government's gonna say we're gonna tax you at ninety percent on that, government's entitled to do that. I gotta follow the law. I'm, I'm okay doing that as long as I really earn the money legally. What we're talking about here is the first issue that we're dealing with is the idea of, of taking money in an illegal manner, getting money, illegal, illegally gained uh, gains um, or immoral, whether they're overt or subtle, this idea of making money in, in, an, in, an, in, an, in an immoral and non-straight way. Now, what's very interesting is that Judaism which essentially, by the way, this whole idea of taking, uh, of having the board members rub shoulders is, it's a form of bribe. And we know that the Torah clearly prohibits the taking of bribe, as it says, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe will blind the clear-sighted and pervert the words of justice. Parenthetically, I want to point out something, this is an idea that I really, really love about this particular verse, because it goes well beyond the issue of money. The Torah tells us, for, for a bribe will blind the clear-sighted and pervert the words of justice. Why should you not take bribe? Bribe. The reason you shouldn't take bribe is because you're going to do something immoral. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says you're not going to, it doesn't say you don't take bribe because it's immoral. 
The Torah says, don't take bribe because the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and perverts the words of justice. What happens when you take bribe? You begin to think differently, right? Imagine you're a board member there and somebody says to you, why are you, why are you voting to increase the CEO's salary? You're gonna give me a million reasons why it's the right thing to do. You're not gonna say, oh, by the way, I'm doing that because I wanna keep my job and I wanna get my bonus, right? You're now gonna have a rational explanation why you're doing that. And the same thing is true with everything in life. When we have a certain world perception, a world, certain worldview, we then put forth all the arguments to support our worldview instead of starting with the arguments and then determining what our worldview should be. That's human nature, it's part of the process, which is why bribe is so dangerous. And we see this actually in this fascinating story with the daughters of Tzlavchad. Uh, Tzlavchad's father, um, so the daughters of Tzlavchad's father had passed and they came forward when this is when Moses was beginning to uh, allocate the, uh, the portions of the land Moses before his passing allocated, divided up the land of Israel. And um, the law was that uh, inheritance passed through the father. So they came to Moses and they said, our father died in the desert, but he was not in the assembly that banded, banded against the God in Korach's assembly, but he died for his own sin and he had no sons. Why should our father's name be eliminated from his family because he had no son? Give us a portion along with our father's brothers. So they said to Moses, our father died. He was not part of the Korach rebellion. He died for his own sin and he had no sons. So why should we miss out on, on not getting our inheritance in the land of Israel? And the Torah concludes, so Moses brought their case before God. And God ultimately granted their, their request. They were, they were given uh, the, a portion of the land and, and the laws around inheritance were established. But what's, what's interesting about this case? What jumps out at you? They're daughters, they're women. Okay, but that's, that's, that's the punchline of the story. But what, what jumps out at you? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's alluded to in the last line. Moses takes their case to God. Why doesn't Moses just answer them? He knows the answer. Why doesn't he just answer them? A very simple reason. They said something to him that now bribed his thinking. The biggest, the biggest mutiny against Moses took place with the rebellion of Korach. So on any personal, emotional level, if there's one incident in our Jewish history that Moses would carry some emotional resentment to the people that were involved in that, it would be the rebellion of Korach. And by saying our father died, but it wasn't on account of the rebellion of Korach. Oh, Moses says, oh, it wasn't on account of the rebellion of Korach. Okay, let's see how I can help you out. Not important that whether that was their intention or not. Moses understood, and we're talking about Moses, right? He's the holiest guy ever. Moses says, I, even me can be influenced from, from this, these, these words of bribe. And therefore, I'm going to take this argument, this, this case to God, to get God's take on it, so I'm not, I'm not influenced by it. So we see how delicate influence can be. 
in how we think about things and how we think about money and how we can justify the different things surrounding money. So back, to, back for a moment, um, we see the dangers in, in how the system around CEOs can, can get corrupted. Again, I, I, we're not giving an opinion here as much as we're trying to give perspective on the first principles, making sure that we're earning money in a legal way and a kosher way, which means obviously not stealing it not getting it in through immoral means, but even subtle things like board influence and so on can also oftentimes um, have, have a negative influence and bribe us in this process. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to the second, the second principle here. The second principle is about how money is spent, ensuring that money is spent in a kosher way. So the money is earned legally. It's earned in a kosher way. And, um, and all is good. But now it's being spent in a non-kosher way. So where should we spend our money? Where should we spend our money? Who has an opinion? in a foundation and uh, you know and I think it it changed also the view you have of that CEO salary if you see that they're giving back you know through foundation or through good um, good deeds okay so so let, let's actually let's for a minute not, let's not talk about the CEO let's talk about you and me where should we spend our, where should we spend our money What's a, what's what's kosher spending? Spend your money on your uh, on your household needs, taking care of your family. Okay, you good. Need to ministry yeah. um, so that the 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 values and everything that you believe in are further. In other words, charity. Um, you should uh, help the poor. Um, those are all the, the, the good uses of money. Um, and I know people often laud a lot of money on themselves for show and fancy cars and homes and all of that. And that's fine if you can afford it uh, and you're not taking advantage of, of other people. Um, but we should give to the poor to help the poor and um, we should take care of our families and we should give to charity. So, so there's two there's two categories of, of of spending. One is on our our livelihood, our well-being, our families, our loved ones. We everybody should have shelter. Everybody should you know we're entitled to have a home. We're entitled to have food. We're entitled to have clothing. We're entitled to have some sense of security. We're entitled to drive a car, go on vacation, um, have save money for retirement. Right? We we take care of ourselves. Um, how much, um, you know, do we need to drive the fanciest car or not? That's, you know, uh, it, it, really that's a personal preference. There's no prohibition against driving a fancy car, but we have to make sure that we're fulfilling our obligations when it comes to money. So obligations means if you're driving a fancy car and you're not feeding your children, we got a problem there, obviously. 
Um, and if you're driving a fancy car at the expense of giving your charity, then that's also an issue. So let's 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 establish what is our what are our obligations around charity, and let's understand what is what is Torah's view around the idea of charity. So um, Terry, why don't you pick up here? Sixteen uh, A. How much should one give? If one can afford it, one should provide as per the needs of the poor. If, however, one cannot afford this, then the, prime, the, the optimal way of fulfilling the mitzvah is to give a fifth. Average fulfillment is to give a tenth, and to give less than this is mean-spirited. So what we have here is very interesting that we are, we are God gives us money, and God is giving us money for our needs, but also as a caretaker, to ensure the distribution of charity. I, I have a fascinating, there's a beautiful, you know, there are certain teachings that you that you you learn, you hear in Torah that just stick with you as like these really profound ideas. So one is this simple idea that um, the Torah tells us how you tithe animals. So uh, once a year, you have to tithe out one of 10 animals. So let's say you're you got a big uh, a big farm you got a lot of cows or a lot of sheep, and um, and you're gonna you want to set aside your tithe. So why don't we put all the cows in a pen, and count out total number of cows, and we see we've got 500 cows, and let's separate 50 cows and and do what we're supposed to do with them. It's not what the Torah tells us. The Torah tells us you put all the cows in the pen, and you let the cows out one at a time. You open up an opening just for one animal at a time to come out. And you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then when the tenth one comes out, you take out, you have a paint can with red paint, and you put a splotch of red paint on the back of the cow. And then you count again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, put a red paint on the back of the cow. It seems like a tedious process because you're gonna then have to go find those red painted cows anyway and collect them and bring them and do what we're supposed to with them. So why this tedious process? The answer is like this. Imagine if I take um, Let's 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 get crazy here. I have 500 $100 bills. And now I'm going to take I'm going to peel off 50 of them to give them to charity. That's a lot of money to give away to charity. I have 500 and I'm giving away 50 of them. But how about if we did this? If we made a pile, we said one for me, two for me, three for me, four for me, seven for me, eight for me, nine for me, and one for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, and one for God. Suddenly, the one for God doesn't feel so bad because we realize, wow, I've, I'm getting nine. And in truth, what's actually happening here is God is saying to us, I've given you nine. I'm only asking for you to give me back one. It's a shift in thinking. So when one can afford it, you give a fifth. If you can't afford it, you give a tenth. By the way, even poor people need to give charity. It, it's, it's, if this is what God has given me, I have a responsibility to give of it to others. Now, it goes one step further. The Alter Rebbe, the author of Tanya, writes a beautiful thing because the Talmud says that one who is one who wishes to squander away their, their money should not give away more than a fifth. So the Talmud said, the Alter Rebbe says that 
let's say a person gave a fifth and then God forbid a family member took ill. Would they say, oh no, I'm sorry, I already give, I've already given away a fifth this year. I'm not taking care of that family member or for themselves. If God forbid they became sick, would they not spend more money on their own well-being? So the Talmud is talking only about obligation, but when it comes to our spiritual well-being, there's no, there's no limit how much a person can give away. So, um, and in fact, some of the commentators tell us that one of the reasons that the Talmud puts a cap of a fifth is so that people should, generous people should not become impoverished by giving away more than, than they can afford to give. There are people that have done that. Very generous people have given away more than they can actually afford to give away. Now, uh, Bill Gates doesn't have that problem. If he gives away more than, a, if he gives away, you know, let's say two fifths, he's still going to be okay. Probably if he gave away almost all of his money, he would still be okay, right? As is true about Jeff Bezos and many others who have taken the giving pledge. So the question, the second question on the table is not so much about, okay, we've established that the money needs to be earned in a kosher way. The second question is, are you spending it in a kosher way? And primarily, are you doing your obligation? Is the CEO, are we as individuals giving, doing our obligation to give the money that is really God's, that we have a responsibility to give back? That is a, a legitimate question in terms of spending money effectively. By the way, my personal take on this idea of wealthy people driving fancy cars and having fancy houses is they're totally entitled. And I, I've never really seen what I'm about to share, but it's, 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 my, it's my, uh, my angle on it. And that is that if God has entrusted me with this wealth, um, one of the perks of the job is that I get to have a nice house and a nice car. Now there is excess, there's indulgence, you know, um, a nice house. I don't, I, you know, I just, uh, I just watched this, uh, this, there's this, um, this fellow that was arrested in Russia, uh, Novotny, whatever his name is, um, who, who Putin tried to kill. Anyway, he got into the secret palace that Putin built. Again, I don't know if any of this is true. It's all, it's all YouTube, so it, the whole thing could be bogus. But Putin built this $1.3 billion palace in the south of Russia. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, think, I think a $1.3 billion palace might be a little excessive for a house. You know, even for a summer house, it's probably a little bit, a little bit too much. But but whatever, if you've got many billions and you want to build yourself a $1.3 billion house, you know, whatever, that's your business. But the main thing is that if you're building yourself a $1.3 billion house, you've already given, you know, $2.6 billion to charity or whatever, you know, that you've given, you've given your share of charity. Um, my, my point being is that it's, it's I have no problem with wealthy people enjoying the fruits of their labor and driving nice cars and living in nice houses, as long as they are actually feeling a sense of responsibility to the money that they've earned, recognizing that it's a gift from God, despite the hard work that they've done, but ultimately they were blessed with it, and that God expects them to do their part. Um, in, in Perkei Avot, there's a Mishnah that says that the, the way of Sodom and Gomorrah is to say what's mine is mine, 
right? If, if somebody's completely wrapped up with, with, with what's mine is mine, I don't have to give anything to you. Obviously, Saddam Gamora, they also said what's yours is mine, but that's a, a whole new level. But even on a basic level, what's mine is mine. That's not a Jewish way. That is not a way of generosity. That's not an appreciation that the money that we've earned um, is a gift from God. And that's definitely not spending money in a kosher way. We're getting a little, it's a little late, but let's let's try to go quickly through the third idea. And the third idea is, okay, let's say um, a person is earning the money properly in a kosher way, and they're spending it in a kosher way. It is still possible for a person, for their money to influence them in their character in a negative way. Um, as uh, Ibn Shuib wrote, that it can lead a person to forget God altogether. You know that famous story? with the guy who's looking for a parking spot and he's going up and down and up and down the, uh, the, the, you know, the rows. And, and finally he says, listen, God, if you help me find the spot, um, I will make a large donation to the synagogue. So he's, you know, driving up and he realized he didn't state an amount. He said, God, if you, if you get me a spot, I, I'll, I'll give a thousand dollars to the synagogue. So uh, right as soon as he says that a car starts pulling out, he says, Oh God, forget it. I just found a spot. Right, so how quickly we forget about God, and how quickly we forget where things are. So let's uh, let's look at this text here. This is straight from the Torah, and I think we are up to um, Lisa. Beware lest you eat and be sated, build good houses, and dwell therein. You're Herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold increase, and all that you have increases. And your heart will go haughty, and you will forget God, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you will say to yourself, my strength and the might of my hand have accumulated this wealth for me. So this is a very clear text here that the Torah is telling us that the danger of the blessing of entering into the land of Israel is that things are going to be good. And when things are going to be good, you're going to say, uh, this is not God, this is me. Look how smart I am. Look how powerful I am. Right? How quickly we forget that all the blessings that we have come from God. The power, the power of wealth to influence us, to disconnect us, is very great. And um, it, is, it is a great challenge. I'll, I'll, I'm going to share... I'll share two stories and we'll, we'll kind of uh, go back to our, our seven texts and see how uh, we can now understand what the various texts are telling us. The first story is um, in 1958, it was Purim. And the tradition on Purim is to drink a lot of L'chaim. And um, this was a gathering with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Rebbe had drank a lot of l'chaim, but the Rebbe is a Rebbe. So when when a re, when a when a commoner drinks a lot of l'chaim, they act crazy and foolish and so on. When a Rebbe drinks a lot of l'chaim, he teaches a lot of Torah, and um, and very fascinating things happen. So at this particular farbringen, the Rebbe opened up his talk with talking about the the great challenge of wealth that having money has a negative influence on our thinking it makes a person haughty 
and um, and and by the way, and this is my own addition. You know, you look around. Uh, you know, I'm in in the role that I play as a as a director of a Chabad house. A big part of my job is to raise funds to support all the work that we do. And I know a lot of people, and I know a lot of wealthy people. And um, although they're wonderful people and generous people, many, many wealthy people that have a lot of money have a lot of tsaris in their life, a lot of challenges in their lives, and a lot of their challenges comes from the fact that they have money. Tensions in relationships, mental, mental illness that's sparked by behaviors that are fed by the fact that there's a lot of money, um, relationships between children and their parents, and it, it, can, it, it can be quite, quite painful. But the Rebbe in this talk elaborated at great length about the difficulty of wealth. And then the, when the Rebbe finished describing this, he said, now all those that wish to be wealthy should raise their hand. And you, there's a recording of this and you hear the, the room laughing with this like uncomfortable laugh. And the story is told that there were three people present who raised their hands. It wasn't, it wasn't a crowd of 5,000 as there were in, in the 80s. It was a couple hundred, but only three people raised their hands. And as soon as, as soon as they finished raising their hands, the Rebbe got very serious. And the Rebbe said, you all practiced this Chabad humility, this Hasidic humility, which essentially was misplaced. In other words, the Rebbe said, those that didn't raise their hand missed, on an, missed out on an opportunity. And then for the next period of time, the Rebbe spoke about the other challenge, and that's the challenge of poverty. And they're both real challenges. They are very real. To have money is a challenge. To not have money is a challenge. To not have money, we don't need a lot of elaboration to explain what the challenge is of poverty. It's pretty, pretty self-evident. The challenge of, challenge of wealth is, a different, is of a different nature. And it's, and it's a much more subtle challenge within the person's character themselves. The challenge of not allowing for ourselves to become haughty. We start making money and we start thinking, oh, look how smart I am. Look what I've created. Look how, how brilliant I am. And then we begin to look at others with a, we look down at others and say, oh, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I'm, I, I, I. so this thinking, the, the oh, having wealth can be a tremendous challenge to our character. Um, just briefly, the story is of this, this uh, particular chassid who was blessed by, uh, by his rebbe to have wealth and um, some time went by and this chassid became wealthy and um, the Rebbe once sent one of his, uh, his uh, a representative to go and ask this individual to help out with a particular cause that he was raising money for. So this chassid who had become wealthy was of course, the Rebbe gave me this blessing, I'm going to give a nice donation and he gave the donation and the, the representative came back to the Rebbe and the Rebbe said, so how is he? So he said, look, he made a very nice donation, but he, he gave me the money. He, he heard my case through his secretary. He gave me the money through the secretary. He seemed to be too busy for me. So the Rebbe came back to, uh, to, the, to this, he came to visit this chassid. 
And uh, the chassid said, look, you know, you gave me a blessing and look at all this wealth that I've been able to, to have. And he took him from room to room and he showed him in the, in the main room of the house, there was this big, beautiful mirror. It was like a centerpiece of the whole house. And the Rebbe said, like, I, I'd like to ask you something. He said, let's go to the window. They look out the window and he, and he says, what do you see out there? He says, well, I see the, the water carrier who's, you know, schlepping to make a living. And I see the, the bread, the baker who's schlepping to make a living. And, um, and, and then he says, tell me the difference between what you're looking at out the window and this mirror. They're both made of glass. So he says, well, the mirror has this thin layer of silver behind it. So the Rebbe said to him, this thin layer of silver, this, this idea of having wealth causes you to only look at yourself. The mirror, the window allows for you to look at others. As long as you, you're, you live with a window, you can look at others and realize that they have challenge. Sometimes when we put silver behind our windows, when we're blessed with wealth, we stop looking at others and we only look at ourselves. And the story goes that this wealthy man who was obviously a good person got the message and to remember that message, he put a big scratch in the back of the mirror so that whenever he looked at the mirror, he would always realize that this is just money and that there are other people to keep his humility where it's necessary. So we've had, we've had three perceptions, three angles here um, that, that we understand about money. One is, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money, but it's got to be earned correctly, legally, morally, without any subtle influences of bribe or otherwise. Number two, our obligation is to give charity, to, to take care of our families, of course, and take care of our needs, but also to remember that we have to give at least a tenth, possibly a fifth to charity. That's, that's spending money in a kosher way. And finally, to maintain an inward focus, to make sure that we don't become haughty in, in, in earning money and think that we've become godlike, um, but to remember where the blessing comes from. So let's go back for a moment to our, our, uh, our examples here from the text, and let's, let's look at them again. So text A. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Provide me my allotted daily bread. This is reflecting the idea, the perception that wealth is a challenge. Not that wealth is bad, but that wealth provides, creates challenge. Similarly, in this, in this next uh, passage, this point is emphasized even more so. Such is the way of Torah. You could even begin this passage with the word, even if. Even if you only had bread with salt, you shall eat. Water in small measure you shall drink, and upon the ground you shall sleep. If that's all we had, live a life of privation and toil and Torah, we still have to never forget what our responsibilities are, and that is to live in a real relationship with God. How much more so if we are blessed with wealth that we have to maintain our relationship with God? Text C, there's a popular saying, poverty adorns Israel like a red, a red strap on a white horse. Here it extols the virtue of, of poverty in that poverty breeds humility. That doesn't mean that that's the only way to be humble, but it's much more challenging to have wealth and be humble. Text D, who is rich, he was happy with his lot. What really does it mean to have, to be, have wealth? 
You can have billions. You know, I, the one thing that I scratch my head and I, I, I know the answers, I know many of the answers to it, but if I was Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, I would retire. Let somebody else take over this thing. Like, I don't want, why do I want to be working if I have that much money? Because in a sense, one is not happy with his lot. I'm sure they have many other good legitimate reasons. They, they're doing good or whatever else, the rationales that they have. But, but essentially, you can make $150,000. You can make $150 million. And the 150000 person is thrilled with their life. They're happy. And the $150 million person is not happy. It's not necessarily about how much you have. Obviously, obviously there's a baseline that allows for people it makes it easier to be happy, but past that baseline, it's really a matter of attitude, whether one is rich or not. Rebbe would honor the wealthy. Rebbe himself was wealthy. Rebbe honored wealthy because he understood that one who is blessed with wealth has the ability to do a lot of good in the world. And Rebbe wanted to nurture that. He wanted to nurture the good that came from that. The text F and G emphasized the idea that wealth is a positive thing and a blessing from God. And although it is a challenge, the, when, we, when we are up to the challenge, we can do a lot of good and make the world a better place. There's so much we can do for our communities, for the world. Um, we don't have the luxury of running away from wealth because, because it's a challenge. If we, if we are afforded the opportunity um, it's something we ought to pursue because if successful, when successful, we can do a lot of good. And I'll, I'll just close with this, that, and I recall this at the time in 1992, uh, shortly before the, the Rebbe took ill, the Rebbe spoke about this idea that it has come time that Jews no longer need to live in poverty. And on the contrary, it's come time that Jews should have wealth and we should be blessed with wealth and we should pursue wealth, not as an end unto itself, but because with wealth, we can do tremendous good in the world. So we haven't answered specifically the issue of CEO compensation, but I would say, I would say if we were summarizing what Torah's view is, by all means, if you are earning it legally, you're not taking advantage of everybody, of anybody. And, um, and you can make a lot of money, go for it. Make sure that you earned it properly. Make sure that, that is, it's untainted in any which way. Make sure that you're doing your share for making the world a better place. And make sure that it doesn't make you haughty. Make sure it keeps you humble. Make sure it, it helps you appreciate your relationship with God. And by the way, this is not just about money. It's about any blessing. If we feel that we're blessed in life, our blessings, if we, if we give credit to ourselves, the blessings can feed haughtiness. If we recognize the blessings come from God, it keeps us humble. Let's close out. Any questions or comments before we call it a night? No, I just want to say I really liked uh, from Pirkei about who's rich, who's happy with his lot. Like I you know, I refer to it often, not to me, but to say to, 
people like my son, for example, who's, you know, in so, so much hour of people who have nice car, big house. And so, yeah. A beautiful, a beautiful teaching is, um, it says that, two teachings. One is that it says that the, there is the same value that could be a positive and a negative right? A person who's happy with their lot when it comes to material things, it's a positive. A person who's happy with their lot when it comes to spiritual things, it's a negative, right? Never be satisfied with what you've attained spiritually. There's more to grow. But there's also another idea that helps us create a, a balance around, um, about, around this, this discussion. And that is that when we look at people who have, when, we, when we're when we think about material things, to always look at those that have less than us. And when we look at spiritual things, to look at those that have more than us. It keeps us humble. Lisa, you wanted to say something? Yeah, what about ambition? God gave us ambition. Right? It's a great question. It's a great question. And I, here's how I've always answered this for myself. We all have responsibilities. We have, we, we have to make sure that we keep our priorities in check. And if our priorities in check, are, if our priorities are in check, then ambition is a gift and a talent that we have to exercise. So if we're pursuing our ambition at the expense of our families, at the expense of our health, at the expense of our spiritual connection, then obviously that ambition is misplaced. But if, if we are pursuing that ambition and our family relationships are intact, and they're being properly nurtured and our physical well-being is taken care of and we're not compromising on our relationship with God and our obligations to Torah, then, then ambition is a gift from God that must be nurtured like any other gift that we've received from God. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Well, thank you all. We'll see you all next Monday for our final class. I've enjoyed, this was a great class. I, 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 I'm saying it was a great class. I enjoyed studying the yes. material and sharing thank the you. class. I hope you found it to be a, a great class as well. I think it's a very powerful, yes. very powerful message in this class. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Thank you, Rabbi. You're welcome. Take care. You soon.